Welcome, Just a Bite listeners. This is Jory, and I'm so thrilled to have my dear friend and colleague, Hope Lane Gavin, joining us for this Mother's Day-themed episode. Hope serves as a Health Equity Fellow for the Center for Community Solutions. She has a bachelor's in political science and a master's in political management and previously worked in the Ohio legislature as a fellow with the Ohio Legislative Service Commission and as a senior legislative aide. In her current role, she is a fierce and well-versed advocate who focuses on issues including public benefits and nutrition, maternal health, and racism as a public health crisis. And y'all, I can also tell you that she is a great friend to have in your corner and that we are lucky to have her working on these issues right here in Ohio. So we're going to talk today about some of the maternal and infant health issues at the front and center of today's public policy debates, how they tie into our work as anti-hunger and anti-poverty advocates and what we can do to drive positive change. Thanks for joining us. Hope, let's dive right in. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, Jory. Um, I just want to take a second to say thank you for having me today. If you've been following um, the Ohio Association of Food Banks for the past several years, you have likely seen Jory and I joking around and feeding off of each other on Twitter or Facebook or a webinar or a work group. Uh, Jory and I's friendship truly developed out of working together throughout the pandemic and between that and growing closer to Ohio Association of Food Banks as a whole and all of our other partners in this space. um, While I'm so saddened that a global pandemic is what was needed to bring folks together. I'm eternally grateful. Uh, Ohio has such a tight-knit group of advocates working together to make this state a better place to live, work, and thrive. Oh, that's so beautiful. You got me crying right at the top of our episode. I couldn't (laughs) agree more. Um, And I'm glad to at least spend a little time together today highlighting some of the issues you're really passionate about and all the expertise and um, compassion that you bring to this work. So Why don't you share with our listeners who maybe don't know you from our exciting uh, Twitter and webinar uh, presence a little bit about what, you know, what's drawn you to these issue areas as an advocate and as a policy expert? Yeah, so as you pointed out at Community Solutions, my two areas of expertise, if you will, are maternal health and nutrition access, and both of which uh, I sort of stumbled into and fell in love with. Uh, while my, I myself have never been pregnant um, as a stepmom and a dog mom, um, I know a lot about struggles of parenthood. Um, in shout addition out to Ella, shout out to Mark Jr. <laughs> Um, In addition to that, however, I have a lot of personal experiences with my own reproductive health care journey as I'm currently struggling with some fertility threatening complications uh, that force me to navigate a lot of the same spaces I advocate for in my work life. Um, Because of this, uh, when I joined Community Solutions nearly three years ago and was asked to help uh, move forward some of our statewide maternal health priorities uh, in the legislature, I was was in. Uh, Not only because I personally dealt with the perils of Black uh, maternal health in my personal life, but, uh, but because, you know, I came from the legislature, as you mentioned, um, before I started at Community Solutions. And I know how any issue um, from a road naming uh, to water quality can be a war, right? And I wanted to pick an issue that wasn't partisan, um, which is, you know, healthy moms and babies is something that we can all get behind. And luckily for that reason, um, I think that that's 
why we've been able to make so much progress um, on this front in the past couple of years. And when it comes to landing in the nutrition space, um, if I'm being honest, one of my colleagues, Rachel Cahill, shout out to her as well, uh, needed a little help analyzing some user experience surveys uh, with the SNAP program um, early on in the pandemic. And because she was so willing to introduce me to the space and was so patient and so kind, I was able to catch on um, to it easily. Um, and sometimes it just takes the kindness of one person to kind of bring you in and um, help you to fall in love with something. So I kind of just stumbled upon both of these issue areas, actually. Well, I think you're doing a little disservice to yourself to say that you stumbled upon them, because I think that from my perspective, you've been really led to this work. I think we all know as advocates that, um, you know, your skill sets can only drive you so far and your passion has to take you the rest of the way. And um, I think your passion speaks for itself. Um, and, and on top of your passion, your willingness to, you know, share your personal connection to this work um, has been really a source of strength and inspiration for me and I know many other advocates. So thank you for bearing, you know, your experiences as part of your, your larger advocacy work. And I know that it's, you know, nutrition and food security and hunger are just a piece of the larger set of issues in your portfolio. But I also know that you, you care a lot about access to public benefits and, and support for folks facing food insecurity. So we're going to zoom in a little bit um, to start out today on, on that issue area. And just to set the stage, this might feel like common sense to listeners, um, or not common sense rather, but uh, commonly known facts at this point. Um, but just to reiterate how devastating food insecurity is in particular for women, in particular for mothers, in particular for single mothers, in particular for black mothers, in particular for Hispanic mothers and, and young children, um, and just the consequences that it has for maternal and infant health outcomes short and long term. You know, that's what I want to center us in today to start. Um, we saw this exacerbated to an unbelievable degree during the pandemic, um, where we saw, for example, that 40% of Black and Hispanic parents of school-aged children were food insecure um, during the early months of the pandemic. I mean, that's, that's just unacceptable. Any measure of food insecurity for parents and kids or anyone is unacceptable, but oh my God, like it's, it's just devastating. So, you know, with that in mind, um, can you talk with our listeners about some of the underlying reasons that pregnant people, that mothers of infants and young children and parents in particular suffer from food insecurity at higher rates? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one of it, part of it really is just the social determinants of health, right? So your ability to get to the store, right? Uh, transportation, how how readily available is public transportation? Um, how are the roads? Are there roads, right? Are they, are they paved? And so some of these like very basic things that we take for granted um, become much harder uh, when, when you have a child or when you're with child. And so uh, doing a very basic thing like getting to the grocery store, um, which you may walk, you may drive, you may take public transportation, but all of those things become increasingly difficult when you add another person, a little person, a person that needs a carrier or needs, you know, fed in the middle of the trip, or you have to carry the, the child and the grocery bags. And so um, all of those things um, become twice as difficult, if not more, depending on, you know, how many children you may have, um, you know, when, when you're trying to do them 
alone. And so there's that, but there's also just parental stress, right? And so um, lots of parents, um, I'm, I'm sure we're going to get into this later, but um, uh, my colleague Catherine Unger and, our, and I are in the middle of doing a WIC project, and much of which uh, right now is just simply interviewing um, WIC recipients and WIC beneficiaries. And so um, we are finding that um, a lot of new parents just don't know what to do, what, what to ask, what to do if their child isn't eating, um, what to do, should they change formula, should they just keep trying, what if they're not latching. A lot of new parents you know, especially first-time parents, they don't know what to ask and who to ask. And a lot of times, um, you know, you can find answers from whether it's your pediatrician, your OBGYN, or the WIC office or the SNAP office. But if you don't know what to ask, then it's useless. And so I think that um, parental stress has been exacerbated truly during the pandemic, during a time when um, it was harder to connect and harder to contact. But I think just generally, um, we're finding just a lot of parents don't know. It's not that it's not necessarily that resources aren't available to everyone, but it's like, if you don't know what to ask, then you're not going to get an answer. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you're in the middle of the night and your child's not latching. What do you do? And I think just like you and I talk about this all the time, Jory, but access to public benefits is hard. Um, administrative burdens alone can be the difference between getting benefits and keeping them. And you can be eligible, income eligible, um, household eligible, you can meet all the eligibility requirements, but if you can't fill out, you know, these ridiculous uh, paperwork and recertifications that you get in the mail if you don't get it on time. Um, we just learned recently in Franklin County um, here in Columbus, you can only call the the JFS line from 8 a.m. till noon and talk to a person. After that, you might get a call back, you might not. And so um, they don't make it easy. <laughs> um, and so when you, it's already difficult. And when you start adding the pressures of parenthood and the pressures of a new baby and a newborn um, to the mix, it just exacerbates many issues that are already there. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's so, so much judgment for new parents and parents of small kids and babies. And I'm sure that they're also I know I can relate to that. You really internalize a lot of your fear and, and trepidation about approaching folks for help as well. You don't wanna appear incapable or ill-equipped to care for your child. Um, and, and on top of that, right, we have a systemic problem. I will just add that the vast majority of working moms get very little to no, usually no paid time off to you know, deliver their child, to be at home with their child, to work through any of those learnings and that that growth with their child and feeding their child. So, uh, yeah, we've got a lot to work on. And I know that some of those challenges that you talked about and others are much worse and much more ingrained for Black and Hispanic parents. Can you talk with our listeners about how systemic racism further exacerbates disparities for those parents and those populations? Yeah, there's quite a few things here, Jory. Um, I mean, so much of our public benefit programming in this country is designed to deter the very things we want to encourage, such as marriage, such as work, such as independence. But we're not here, I guess, to talk about the benefit cliff and stuff like that, are we, Jory? So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so while well, pregnant people and parents of young children are largely exempt from some of that stuff, so like work requirements, um, unmarried couples um, struggle to navigate who needs to work and when, right? And so, and we know work requirements or having to literally work for food is inherently racist um, and largely stems from this racist stereotype that black and brown folks don't want to work. Um, and work requirements lead to greater food insecurity by removing people from the program through sanctions and deterring others from registering. Also, the nature of work requirements um, 
is that the of the work that's performed because of work requirements to, uh, is largely unskilled and or low wage and rarely leads to long-term gainful employment. And when you think about what one needs, right, to get and maintain a good job, which entails, you know, job security, a benefits package, a living wage, low stress, you think about the things that you that are needed, right? So you need um, no criminal history, probably a high school diploma, if not a college degree, a network of peers in the desired industry, digital literacy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we know that black and brown individuals who in turn become black and brown parents <laughs> are disproportionately represented in the criminal justice system, uh, leaving them with criminal records and you know, are disproportionately uh, attending inner city under-resourced schools and therefore not graduating high school at the same rate. We also know that the digital divide isn't just an issue in Appalachia, right? Just applying for a job is a struggle. It's just as hard in parts of East Cleveland as it is in East Benton County in our state. Like you said, systemic racism exacerbates this disparity. I guess you've already summed it up with the, with the question is um, this disparity that already is, exists. It, when you add the public benefits programs, it just it, it just continues to, to, to grow, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you and I certainly couldn't agree more that we do not in any way appropriately invest, especially in our future. Our future are pregnant persons, bringing new babies into our world, our communities, raising them up to be engaged citizens. Uh, you know, I think it's a personal passion for both of us that parents be empowered to do that hard work. That is the most important work beyond all other work. Um, so, okay, let's maybe zoom in and out at the same time and talk about how does all of what we're talking about fit into the divides in health outcomes more broadly, specifically for pregnant and nursing people and for Black and Hispanic infants and young children. We've talked about all of this, but how does that look in real terms as it relates to health outcomes for those moms and babies? I mean, so in addition to all of the other bad news we just discussed and touched on, it gets worse, <laughs> um, unfortunately, when you consider all that Black and Brown parents have to go through and many times before labor and delivery and things don't look better, much better for them, you know, during and after labor and delivery. Um, black women in Ohio are two and a half times more likely to die of a pregnancy-related death than white women. Um, this fact gets more urgent with age as Black women age 30 and older are four to five times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. Um, current rates of severe maternal morbidity, which is like a near miss or a near death and almost death um, among Black Ohio women are nearly two times higher at 112 per 10,000 deliveries compared to severe maternal morbidity rates for white Ohio women at 60.5 per 10,000 deliveries. Um, reasons for these disparities vary, but what it boils down to is systemic and institutional racism. So weathering, that is Black women's bodies aging at a much faster rate, making them biologically older than their white counterparts due to having to endure, you know, constant racism and discrimination and stress. You have the implicit bias of doctors and medical professionals just not listening to, um, you know, families of color when they say, hey, I don't think I should be bleeding right now. Hey, I think I'm in labor. You have, you know, doctors sending folks home that shouldn't be sent home. You have higher rates of C-sections among um, Black families, Black women, um, and which, you know, complicates, you know, C-section is a major, major, major surgery and um, which can result in, you know, complications, infections and things. And when you have, um, 
you know, 30, black women are 34% more likely to have a C-section and many of those are not necessary C-sections, but rather convenient, right, C-sections, uh, whether that be because, you know, doctors are switching shifts, they want to get on with their lives, they have something else to do, um, well, let's just knock out the C-section really quick, well, that sounds really, you know, easy and convenient for you, but it's costly, it's deadly, and it also makes recovery and caring for a newborn incredibly difficult. So when you start talking about a C-section and then you get into food insecurity, how are we supposed to expect a, a mom that, you know, had a C-section three days ago to get, you know, walk down to Walgreens, um, use her WIC benefits if, if they've even, you know, enrolled in those yet. And, you know, with a carrier and, you know, bags and she has a C-section, like, it's just not realistic, right? Um, and so, unfortunately, um, you know, these health outcomes are just as poor as, you know, their access to food in, in some cases. Even talking about the pylon upon pylon that we're talking about for these families and these new moms uh, can be debilitating. And so we can only imagine what it feels like day to day for them living in that space. And, you know, I know that you are working in the weeds really on specific policy changes that can be made right now to improve some of those outcomes. So let's dive into some, some good vibes, some things that we think can be done to improve the lives of moms and babies who are impacted by these disparities, um, especially in the way of nutrition. I know that you mentioned earlier that you're working on some research on the Women, Infants, and Children or WIC program um, with our friend and colleague, Catherine, over at Children's Defense Fund of Ohio. Would you talk with us a little bit more about that, maybe, and some of your early findings around areas for improvement? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and hey, Catherine, shout out to Catherine. We love you um, over at Children's Defense Fund Ohio. You and Tracy are wonderful. Um, so Catherine and I are um, currently in the middle of a pretty expansive and comprehensive project looking um, at, you know, where maternal health and nutrition meet, like you said, the WIC program known as, known in Ohio as Ohio WIC, um, very simple. Um, but WIC is the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, and is designed, you know, to safeguard the health of low-income women, infants, and children up to age five who are at nutrition risk by providing uh, nutritious foods to them at no cost. Um, participation in the program has proven uh, to be effective at combating many poor uh, maternal and infant health outcomes, such as reducing infant mortality, reducing incidences of low birth weight, um, and more. WIC also helps participants make stronger connections to preventative health care and other supports such as home visiting, smoking cessation, lead screening, breastfeeding support, and more. It's, it's a wonderful program. While our project is still ongoing, um, we have uncovered quite a bit in the first few months um, about how the program operates in Ohio. First, Ohio is one of only nine states uh, who operates the program offline. Um, this means a few things. So one, applicants can't apply for the program online, which is very unique compared to other public benefit programs in our state and in our country. Um, you can apply for Medicaid online, you can apply for um, um, SNAP or food stamp benefits online. You can apply for a uh, publicly funded childcare online. Um, HEAP online, the, the uh, program that um, assists with paying um, heating bills, um, et cetera. So this, you know, movement to online um, has, has happened uh, over the past two decades or so for these other programs. Um, but in Ohio, um, applicants or potential applicants um, can apply for the program online. They must print and mail 
um, or take the application up to the clinic or simply, you know, just drive to the clinic. Um, we found many people just do that. Other public benefit programs at a minimum uh, can screen people too um, online to let them know, you know, if they are likely eligible and what they might be eligible for. So I know that there are some tools online um, that says, you know, with your with the SNAP program, for example, you know, type in your, you know, average monthly income, how many people in your household, uh, rent expenses, and they can kind of give you an estimate as to, you know, whether almost if it's worth it, you know, to to keep going through the program. A lot of people think many of the administrative um, burdens and paperwork aren't worth it, um, but um, that's up to them. And, uh, but WIC doesn't allow that. So you can't just type in a few things online. Oh, I might get $50 a month. This is worth it. Let me keep going. You can't do that in Ohio. You can in other states, you cannot in Ohio. Another thing that this means, this offline benefit means is recipients have to physically go to the clinic to get their benefits. So although the WIC um, program operates on like a debit-like card, similar to the SNAP or food stamp program, you have to literally go to the physical clinic inside, drive there inside and hand your card to someone who has to put it on a machine to get the benefits loaded. So imagine a lot of people are way more familiar with the food stamp or SNAP program than the WIC program. So imagine every month if you had to take that SNAP card, that Ohio um, EBT card up to a, a place just to be able to, to then have to go to the store to use the benefits. Again, this is not consistent with most other states in this country, again, we're one of nine. And then the here is people are unaware of their benefit balance um, because of this offline system, right? So um, there is an app that a lot of folks use it's called like the WIC Shoppers app. And it's, it's very helpful um, in my experience with the interviewees and the program. Um, but even that, um, which does show you, you know, what's left on your card every month, even that is slow to upload uh, or update rather. So um, because we're offline, it, it takes 24 to 48 hours to like reset and to let you know what the balance is. So I say all that to say one of our biggest recommendations is to bring our program online. And, you know, we know it's not as easy as clicking a button. We know that um, this will um, mean some changes for retailers having to change over their point of sale devices. Um, we know that this is, you know, a little cumbersome for the state. But one of our, um, you know, main points of recommendations, no matter who we talk to from WIC directors across the, uh, across the state, really, from Lucas County to Franklin County to Cuyahoga County, uh, Perry, Athens County, everyone agrees um, it's time to bring our program online. It's, it's time to modernize um, our program. Um, we, over the pandemic, so between December of 2019 and December of 2021, so that two years there, um, Ohio's WIC participation rate uh, decreased by nearly 16%, so 15.92%. Um, so that means there are eligible Ohioans and eligible Ohio families that are just dropping off of the program because it's just too complicated. Um, and we should never just not feed our children and our pregnant people in our state because it's too complicated. Um, so we, like I said, we are still in the middle of this project. We have quite a few other recommendations that we are still uh, flushing out. But I mean, um, bringing our program online is certainly, certainly, certainly our first <laughs> recommendation. Well, I'm so grateful, first of all, that you all are dedicating the time and the and the brain power to really doing the hard work in uncovering these, again, what seem like common sense attainable solutions to um, barriers that, to accessing a program that is really well suited to addressing not all, it's not a cure-all, like we're not talking about WIC or other public benefits being a cure-all for 
the systemic root causes of poverty and wealth and wage inequity and racism, but we're talking about improving the way that we implement solutions, right? That we all believe in. And so like, I, you know, I, I have to admit, I get, I get really frustrated on my end when I hear about like just that example of we know as, uh, as a state and as a society that we have a maternal and infant mortality and morbidity crisis and we have for years. And here is a really common sense solution to modernize this program that, as you said, is at the intersection of maternal and infant health and nutrition. And we just need the willpower to do it, right? We need the willpower right. to do it. So um, I guess I'm sharing a little bit of my frustration um, in some of this work. Would you mind talking, you know, what would you say frustrates you sometimes when you're doing this work? What keeps you up at night? Oh, Jory, you know, I, I text you all night about all of the things that keep me <laughs> up at night, but honestly, and you, you just touched on it and I agree, it's the bureaucracy that gets in the way of people's basic needs being met. So like I said, you can qualify and you, your household can qualify and your income can qualify. And I, you know, I'm all here for, you know, parameters being around programs to ensure those that need it most um, have access to them. But, you know, I heard this term yesterday and actually I think it was from an article that you shared with me, Jory, um, called the time tax. So if you, um, you know, can make it that difficult for someone to access something, they're eventually just not going to, right? So if you have a 29 page application for a public benefit program, I mean, the chances of you filling out every all 29 pages accurately and write the first time and you know you're in this vulnerable situation which has brought you to this application to begin with um and so it's like you can meet all the, their requirements but if you mess up some paperwork or don't get it in on time um you know we've heard countless countless stories recently about you know the post post office and all their struggles have impacted the way uh people you know whether or not they get their benefits or whether they're cut off you know if you get your recertification notice in the mail, but the mail's running late. <laughs> so you have this letter sitting somewhere in a post office, somewhere in your state that says, call JFS at this time to recertify your benefits. And once you get the letter, um, you know, that date has come and passed Be to no fault of your own. Maybe you were on vacation or maybe the mail didn't come or maybe it went to your neighbor's house on accident. So now you go to the grocery store and the benefits are cut off. So then you call the number when you get off work, right? At five o'clock, you call the JFS and say, hey, you know, I missed it, no fault of my own. How, what, what can I do to get back on? And you can't call at five o'clock. So what are you supposed to do? You know, you've, you've done everything you can. You're working, you know, the 20 hours a week. You meet the, you know, household income eligibility guidelines. You're doing everything that you're supposed to do. And, you know, bureaucracy just gets in your way, right? So that's, that's what's, you know, really grinding my gears these days. Yeah, I mean, that makes me think about, you know, what I feel like we were feeling really hopeful about. And I would like to think I, you know, I at least for my sake, I'm still hopeful about that we have learned and really, really absorbed the learnings about um, some of our up to now failures not just in Ohio, but across the country, um, you know, at the federal level to modernize access to public benefit programs, um, to recognize that this is, we're well, well into the 21st century and our access to public benefits and family supporting programs should come along. And, you know, when you were talking about um, 
the offline system and the, you know, I, I've heard myself moms as well share about, well, I'm not going to walk a mile with my three month old in a stroller to go to an office to load, you know, $40 on my card so that I can go and have to buy a, a formula that my child has shown um, not to prefer to reject. Uh, like there's so much work to be done there, right? But but getting to my point of of finding energy and hope and optimism for how we can move forward, you know, we've seen lots of places in which we've learned and seen in real time during the pandemic how we can solve some of those modernization problems and streamline some of that bureaucracy to better serve people and better promote positive health outcomes. Like, you know, in our world with summer food service program, we've been talking for years, ever since I got into this work about how we have hundreds of thousands of kids during the school year who rely on free reduced price meals. They get quality nutritious meals, um, often breakfasts as well as lunches, Monday through Friday during the school year. Well, what happens on the weekend? What happens during the summer, right? And during the pandemic, we got to see what it could look like if we were able to serve non-congregate meals, meaning we could allow a working mom to come on a Monday after work and pick up a week's worth of lunches to bring home for her kids. And like, that's not revolutionary. You know, we've been talking about how that would, a solution like that could work for a long time. And then we got to test it in real time and see that, yes, we can make this work. Believe in us, trust us, trust us as providers, trust community members that they want to do right by themselves and their families, and then it's all for the greater good. So that's where I'm still finding my hope um, that we can take learnings from the pandemic and, and put them into permanent policy. Do you have something that's getting you energized? You know, where are you finding your hope right now and what, you know, admittedly feels like a dark time? Yeah, Jory, this is a great question. Um... You know, honestly, when I have meetings, you know, I'm a lobbyist and, you know, you are too. <laughs> I call myself the good kind, right? Um, but when I have meetings with folks on both sides of the aisle, because I have to, right? Um, and they have the same reaction to whatever I'm presenting, right? So whether it's about moms and babies, whether it's like, you know, we got to keep older adults fed, um, whatever it is. You know, that's that's my hope. It's like, okay, I can meet with, you know, Leader Russo and um, you know, Speaker Cup or, you know, you know how it is at, at the at the Ohio State House. And, you know, it's easy to feel these days, you know, we're we're in one of the most polarizing times in American history. And when you turn on the news and you hear about critical race theory and you hear about mask arguments and you hear about school boards, you know, going awry. It's easy to think and it's easy to believe we're at a place where, you know, the two major political parties in our country will never agree on anything again. And it's just not true. You know, I have been in meetings with people who have introduced some things that I definitely don't agree with. And then the next week they're like, hey, um, let's do something on midwives or let's, you know, let's, uh, you know, expand Medicaid. You know, we were one of the first states to expand uh, Medicaid for 12 months for 12 months postpartum for women who would get just given birth on Medicaid. So we were one of the first states to do that. And so this, this current General Assembly, so in the same General Assembly that we're talking about, you know, critical race theory and all the other stuff that you hear on the news that gets the headline. Right now, the Republicans are in the majority in our state. And so that means that they too are also responsible for expanding, you know, Medicaid for a year after birth. Um, and that's huge. I mean, that's huge. And so I say that to say, 
it's easy to feel like there's no wins. It's easy to feel like we're at a loss and nobody's ever going to agree. And we're not going to agree on anything. You know, like I said earlier, uh, there, it could be a war over uh, road naming. It could be a war over uh, water quality. But sometimes there's those days where you meet with people on both sides of the aisle and they both say, huh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, and you're like, oh, like, <laughs> I got them. I found, I found the, you know, I found the unicorn. I found the, the nugget that everyone can get behind. And so, and it happens more often than you think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love that. I, I could think of that example really quickly about the 12 months Medicaid postpartum extension. That's going to help 14,000 Ohio women um, each year. Um, and that's huge. And it's, it's wonderful and it's amazing. And so I say that to say, it's not all bad. Absolutely. Not all bad. There is as I think, I think you might have tweeted this earlier today or yesterday, since that's how we communicate these days, right? We're true millennials. Wait, you're millennial or you're? I'm a millennial, Jory. Come on. I'm a grandma millennial. We're both millennials here. I um, can't believe you, you accused me of that. <laughs> Folks, she has a long career history and somehow has barely been alive. Like, I don't know how she's done it all, but um, I think you tweeted yesterday just simply that advocacy can and does work. And, you know, we got to hold on to that. And you have the proof is in the pudding. Um, We we have some shared successes um, to hang our hats on and and lots more to work toward together. So I'm glad to have you as a partner um, and the Center for Community Solutions, of course, um, at large as well. Um, Let's close just by acknowledging that like, we're all human beings. We're all flawed. We're not perfect advocates. We bring our own biases. We bring our own, you know, passion areas, our own sets of values, our own paradigms. But um, you talked about how you're able to kind of across various party lines and ideologies identify with people as human beings and find common ground. So, you know, maybe that's the answer to this question and you've already given it, but I'd love if you would just give listeners and encouragement about what can we be doing as advocates and as human beings, like in our conversations and our daily lives to reverse some of these trends that we've talked about and really show that we care for moms and babies. Yeah, I think that's a great question too. A few things. I think storytelling, stories are powerful. And I think too often than not these days, people like to speak on things that didn't necessarily happen to them or they never actually experienced. It just sounds good or sounds right. But we have to bring back stories and real life stories into the narrative. Like, has this happened to you? And if so, talk about it in that way. Um, like I, I started off by, you know, this conversation by saying I've never been pregnant, right? And I can admit that, but I have had my own struggles and I have, you know, I can testify to, you know, the black women in my family who have struggled, but I have to be honest and upfront, you know, I have never been pregnant. So all of, you know, my information is coming, is informed by those who have, but, you know, I have to be honest about it. So I think that, you know, storytelling and speaking on, you know, what you can actually speak on. Um, Sometimes people have very strong opinions about things that don't affect them or don't happen to them and they've never actually witnessed. I think that we see a lot of that these days. But also I think that um, on that same note um, is allowing the people who it's happening to, to inform the policy change. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to pull every SNAP beneficiary and every WIC beneficiary off the street and into, you know, the the state house to testify. But, you know, we as advocates have to make honest effort 
now more than ever to let, you know, the policies that we're pursuing, the recommendations that we're recommending, um, you know, whatever the case may be, to be informed by the people, at least some people, that it's actually happening to every single day. And so I don't think we do enough of that work. Um, and I think that um, those in public benefits advocacy can can do do more, I guess, than others. But I think even in the maternal and infant health space, you know, we have to lift up the women who have experienced these adverse outcomes and allow them to tell their story and not always assume that we that we are the one the right ones to tell their story for whatever reason that may be because we think you know only college graduates need to get up and you know go to the state house or only you know people who you know work and have applied for a job and et cetera et cetera whatever the case may be like we have to you know that's not working anymore. <laughs> um, we need to hear from the actual people that it's happening to because so much gets lost in translation when we try to tell somebody's story for them. And also, and I'm sure this has happened to you in your time, Dory, but sometimes we're just kind of advocates fighting for the wrong thing. You know, we think that, you know, the answer to all this is, you know, better notices or something like that. But really they don't care. The beneficiaries themselves don't care about the notices. What they care about is, you know, having more wick or snap retailers in their neighborhood it's not that they don't care about the notices they think the notices are just fine and so sometimes listening to those impacted is it's how we need to shape our advocacy because sometimes you're just wasting our time right like is some of this stuff actually going to help anybody no but it doesn't make it us feel good yeah so no we probably shouldn't be doing it <laughs> um because you know nobody asked for this so um i guess it's just like listening more than you speak um i, I think it's you know um, bringing back the importance of storytelling and narrative uh, shaping. I think that's about it. Well, I I think that leaves us with some real nuggets as advocates and, and listeners who are listening to the podcast to, to really think on um, and stew on and, and work toward. Um, so you talked about listening more than talking, and that's what we're going to try to do more of as well in this podcast. We want to continue to listen to experts like you who are working every day in fields like this that are relevant to our work as anti-hunger and anti-poverty advocates. And I'm just so grateful for your time today with us and more importantly for you as a friend and as a human being and um, just as someone that I know Ohioans can trust in to work really with integrity on their behalf and in partnership with them. So thank you. Thank you, Hope. Thanks, friend. Listeners, I know Mother's Day doesn't hit the same way for everyone. You might be struggling with infertility, navigating your grief as a lost parent, coping with alienation from your own maternal figure, or missing a mom you lost too soon. I hope if you're listening that you feel a bit more seen. To the moms working every day to do the best they can for their kids, to make sure they're fed and loved, we are rooting for you and we want you to know you're doing a great job. I also want to acknowledge that Hope lost her mom, Kathy Jean, far too young and just say to Hope that I think she would be so proud of the work you are doing on behalf of moms across Ohio. Vice President Kamala Harris recently convened the first ever cabinet level meeting on maternal health and she said, quote, during that meeting with secretaries who represent the biggest agencies in our federal government, we discussed the importance of seeing and treating women as whole human beings. We must understand maternal mortality is not only a healthcare issue, it is also a housing issue, a transportation issue, an environmental issue, 
end quote. Similarly, let's continue to take on issues through a whole government and cross-sector lens so we can address the downstream hardships, but also the root causes of those hardships. We'll talk to you next time.